Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie Gigi, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. If you like what you hear today, visit my Fertile Ground Communications page on Patreon and find out how you can support my work. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I am fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, or any kind of document, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. I have a passion for companies that care and give back to their communities. So I'm starting a new podcast, Companies That Care, to highlight those leaders in the industry. We're going to launch on Earth Day this year. If you know of someone who is leading a company that is changing the world in the areas of sustainability, philanthropy, community involvement, or diversity, equity, and inclusion, please send me their name. I've turned away several white guys who wanted to share their grit and resilience stories on this podcast. I've always been aware of the vast overrepresentation of white males in publishing, media, and in most professions. So when I started the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, I wanted to highlight voices on the margins, inviting people who did not always get a platform to share their stories. To date, I've interviewed more than 50 people including 38 women, 24 people of color, 12 immigrants, 12 who identify as LBGTQIA+, and only seven men. Dr. Chuck Bergman is the first white man I've interviewed, along with his wife, Susan Mann. Chuck is a perfect choice because when I was a 20-year-old junior at Pacific Lutheran University, he inspired me to become a writer and taught me an important lesson about resilience, as I'll share in the conversation. As a writer, photographer, and retired professor, Chuck has published five books and over 150 articles in such prominent magazines as National Geographic, Smithsonian, Audubon, and Natural History. He has won several awards, including the Washington State Book Award. One of his greatest joys has been to lead student study away tours to wild destinations like Ecuador, Argentina, Mexico, Chile, Tanzania, and Uganda. And he's proud to have led six tours to Antarctica with PLU students. Susan Mann is a professional credentialed coach and leadership consultant who has worked closely with Dr. Brene Brown and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She's also a climate reality leader with Al Gore's Climate Reality Project. She's a watercolor painter, workshop and soul collage facilitator, and nature lover. She's also researched and written about resilience in the workplace and in life. Every penguin in the world, a quest to see them all, is the story of their effort to see each of the world's 18 species of penguins in the wild. It is a story of overcoming various challenges and serious health issues. I posted photos and further details about Chuck and Susan on my website, including links to their websites. I highly recommend you go take a look at the gorgeous photography and penguins. You can find the background details at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com on the podcast tab. Now, welcome Chuck and Susan. Hello, Chuck and Susan. Thank you so much for being on the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. It's a real honor to have you with me. Happy to be here. Hi, it's Thank good you. to see you again, Marie. Yeah, you too. So I read your book, Every Penguin in the World, during a series of two insomnia-filled nights. 
I've been, <laughs> I've been having a lot of insomnia lately, and, and I knew the book would have gorgeous photography and writing. But what surprised me was the suspense that you wrote into your stories. And yeah. when, my, when my husband woke up, I told him that I couldn't put the Penguin book down, that it was gripping. And he was surprised, yeah. to say the least. So <laughs> I found the book to be fascinating. I was really surprised by how much I really, yeah, I couldn't put it down. So congratulations. Thank you. Well, I can tell you that when I pitched the book to the publisher, I described it as story-driven and fact-friendly. And so it was meant to tell stories and to use those as a way to engage people in the whole idea of penguins and why we should care about penguins. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that the stories made a difference for you. Definitely. So I always start out my podcast by asking people to tell us about their childhood. So where did you grow up? What were your family and childhood like? And when did you discover your love for animals and the outdoors? We're both Pacific Northwest people. I was not born in the Pacific Northwest. I was born in Minneapolis, but came out to Washington and Seattle as a baby with my parents who moved in and moved out from Minnesota. My dad got a job at Boeing and uh, have always loved the Pacific Northwest, went to the University of Washington as an undergraduate and got a PhD in English Renaissance literature from the University of Minnesota. And people are always interested in somebody who writes about penguins who did a PhD dissertation on poetry of the 16th century. There's quite a little transition that happened over the course of the years there, but that may be a different subject. At any rate, I fell in love with animals when I was a graduate student. I had a history of liking animals as a kid, but it was really as a graduate student and learning to bird watch in Minnesota as a kind of form of relaxation, really, while I was studying to take my exams and putting together my dissertation. Birds really, really became a passion for me then. Nice. So for me, I'm a fourth generation Seattleite and grew up in the forest, kind of protected land in the northeast part of Seattle with undeveloped acres back in the 60s and 70s. And there were pheasants and salamanders and skunks and all kinds of animals and <laughs> birds. And so really from the very beginning, I loved animals and spent a lot of time outdoors. I'm the oldest of five kids. My parents were great about getting us out in the natural world regularly, kind of winter and summer. And for example, in the summer, we always took camping trips up to the San Juan Islands, to Mount Rainier, over to Sun Lakes in eastern Washington. And so so a lot of time outdoors and in nature growing up. So did animals or penguins bring you together? Did you ever imagine you'd marry someone who had the same fascination with animals and penguins? Well, you know, not specifically penguins, no. Actually, <laughs> before I met Chuck, I had a particular affinity for penguins, but that wasn't really something we talked about early in our relationship. I would say it was more kind of higher order in that we knew from our early days that we both shared a passion and a love for the natural world and for wild animals. And so that that certainly was a common 
on from the beginning and has been enduring for now 25 years. Yeah, I would say that certainly penguins did not bring us together. Uh, I didn't see my first penguin till some seven or eight years after I met Susan. But they quickly became something of a shared passion for us. And we realized that this kind of journey to see all 18 species of penguins in the world gathered momentum over the course of the years. It really deepened the bond between us. It became a shared passion that I think was sort of hard to describe the impact of it, except that it was just so wonderful that this was something we could do together and Mm. really define our relationship in a lot of ways through it. That's great. So Chuck, I met you when you were my advanced composition professor at Pacific Lutheran, and you changed the trajectory of my life by encouraging me to major in English. So I really give you a lot of credit for what I do for a living. And you also helped me discover one of the keys to resilience, the therapeutic effects of telling one's vulnerable story. Do you remember what happened in that advanced comp class? Yeah, I think I do. But uh, do you want to say something about it? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I really, I remember a conversation with you and encouraging you. Yes. Yeah. So you wrote on one of my papers, have you ever thought about majoring in English? And that was, you know, huge because I was an education major. My junior year was kind of late to change my major. But also the other thing that really life-changing for me was that you had us write my turn style essays. And I wrote a story about being sexually assaulted when I was 13 years old. And it was really, you know, very difficult to write. But when you saw it, you said, would you read this to the class? It's my personality. When I'm asked to do something difficult, it's very difficult for me to say no. <laughs> so, so I kind of rise to that occasion. So I actually read it to the class. It was the first time I'd ever shared that story publicly. That's partly what I try to do with this podcast is have people tell their stories because I really believe it's therapeutic to be vulnerable. So anyway, I just wanted to give you a huge shout out for that. It was really, really life-changing for me. Thank you for saying something about that, Marie. I, I will say as the course of my career developed at PLU as a teacher and professor, the role of mentoring students really took over. I saw teaching more as kind of mentoring and working one-on-one with students more than in kind of classroom performances. And it's one of the things, Penguins actually grew to play something of a large part in that because I started taking students all over the world in including to Antarctica and seeing penguins. And those are life-changing events. And I love that about that kind of travel, the way it could change a person's life. And I think that's one of the key things about writing is that you find your story and it's very empowering. Yeah, I really enjoyed those anecdotes you had in your books about your trips that you took the students to see the penguins and other animals as well. So let's talk about your article, The Penguin Glow, Penguins Teach Us About Hope and Resilience, that you wrote for Penguins International. You say penguins offer living lessons in hope and resilience. Can you elaborate on the three ways penguins can help provide hope and relieve the gloom? Sure. As I thought about it, penguins really are wonderful. If you think about a penguin and where they live and what they go through to conduct their lives, it's pretty astonishing. And they are models of resilience in very difficult ways, difficult environments, and hope just sort of springs from them. What I described those three ways as being an intimate connection with animals, it's possible in Antarctica. This is one 
of the great things about Antarctica to see animals, but they don't hide from you. They don't flee from you. In fact, you can walk among them and have these kind of intimate experiences with animals. And it really is, there's something about that that's deeply grounding. So that was one of the first things. The second was the necessity of awe and wonder. And penguins will take you to that because they live in these vast and kind of hostile landscapes and they make people feel the Antarctic environment and the Antarctic landscape will make you feel small and penguins can make you feel small in that way too and that they can manage that landscape in a way that we probably never could. But they don't make you feel insignificant and it's one of the things students often commented about it, seeing penguins and being in Antarctica. You feel small, but not insignificant. You actually feel bigger in the bigness of the whole. And so that sense of awe and wonder, I just think is really crucial and is life-changing, clarifying for values and finding purpose and meaning in life. So an intimate connection with animals, a necessity of awe and wonder. And then the therapeutic effects of laughter. Yeah, this is just really simple, but penguins are just, can't watch them without laughing. There's just something about being in their company that is really gratifying and restorative, I guess you could say. They, <laughs> they will definitely make you laugh. They seem so self-important and they're walking along and then all of a sudden they'll trip and they'll just do a face plant <laughs> in the snow. They're very social and they are always seen with other penguins. And then they seem like they're getting along and all of a sudden one of the penguins will just slap the other one with a flipper. <laughs> oh and, and the laughter is something that I think is restorative as well. Susan and I have a term for the feeling you get in the company of penguins, which is really like the feeling you get with no other animals that we know. We call it the penguin glow. It's actually Susan's term and that's mm -hmm. her. My Instagram her name. Instagram name. <laughs> ah. But you do, you come away with this feeling that it's hard to describe, but it's the combination of awe and affection that they evoke. And it's there's just nothing like it. They're real high. Yeah, it seems like you had a couple of really great penguin to person encounters, like when one of them called, like did, I don't know, it was like a mating call. I'm not sure what kind of call it was. And you decided to respond with the call. An experience with a king penguin on South Georgia <laughs> Island. South George Island is this gorgeous island. One of the great discoveries of our lives is how beautiful South Georgia Island was and how much we loved going there. So we did a, about a three and a half week trip to the Falkland Islands in the South Georgia Island. South Georgia, for those who may not know, is about 900 miles east of the coast of Argentina. You can only get there by boat, at least civilians can only get there by boat. And it's just a spectacularly beautiful wild landscape. And it's full of penguins. And there are beaches like St. Andrew's Bay that fill up with breeding king penguins, three foot tall penguins with pewter backs and white chests and gorgeous orange highlights. There'll be 250,000 pairs of king penguins on this beach, all breeding. And we landed there. I saw a photo I wanted to take, got on my tummy to kind of crawl up and take this photo of these penguins. And I had this discovered that a king penguin on its own had come up to me and was pecking at my boots and biting at my pants. And it came all the way up to my face, looked me in the face, and then leaned back and did this loud call. It's very hoarse. It sounds sort of like a kazoo. It was just strange because I knew exactly what it was doing and it was saying something to me and I knew what it was saying. It wasn't a mating call. It's an identity call. Mm -hmm. They have in those big beaches, the king penguins don't use nests. They carry their egg on their feet and hatch it that way. And so the chicks can wander all over. So when the parents go off to fish and they come back, 
the chicks may be wandering and they've got to find their chicks. And the way they do it is through that call. Each penguin has its own call sound and it's recognizable by the chick and the chick is recognizable to the parent and the two parents can find each other that way. So when a penguin does that call, it's saying, this is who I am. It's announcing itself to you, saying, I am, this is who I am. Who are you? And your job is to answer. Well, that was a really powerful moment because not only was it kind of a communicative moment with the penguin, but it really kind of put me on notice. Who am I really? And who am I in relationship to all these penguins and to the kind of earth that we love? And that became really the driving purpose of the book was to answer that question to that king penguin. Oh, that's an amazing story. So let's let's delve a little bit more into the book itself and really the journey that you took. Can you tell us about how you started this journey? Well, the journey started really accidentally. It started by seeing a Galapagos penguin and swimming with them and really in just being spectacularly moved by that. But we didn't really begin with at the beginning, like with the first penguin saying, oh, let's see all of them, because it's a pretty daunting thing to undertake. But we slowly kind of found ourselves just by virtue of going places where we could see penguins and seeing more and more species. There just came this moment when we decided, you know, there are 18 of them. Actually, when we decided there were 17, and that's a whole other story. X numbers, 17, we'd seen 10, and we just felt, what the heck? This has been so amazing, and we should make an effort to see all 18. And that's really how kind of accidentally emerged. We just followed our passion for these things, and it led to this journey, this quest that seemed larger than than us. Yeah, I think, you know, I would add to that, that very early on, like around the time of the first trip to the Galapagos, we also read about Shackleton for the first time and started reading about other Antarctic explorers. And these are amazing stories of courage and hardship and resilience and failure and, you know, just fascinating, including leadership lessons, which I'm also interested in. And so that was another part of the attraction. There was something to do with your 10-year anniversary? Yes, absolutely. That was with African penguins. We decided for one of our anniversaries to volunteer with Earthwatch Expedition to contribute to work with the study with this project on Robben Island with African penguins to study and conserve them. The African penguins are like, they're one of the most endangered penguins in the world. In the last century, they've lost about 95% of their population, and they really only have one stronghold breeding island population left, and that's Robben Island, which your listeners may recognize, but probably not for penguins. Robben Island is where the prison that held 1,500 political prisoners whose crime was opposing apartheid in South Africa, and Nelson Mandela was one of those prisoners, spent 18 years on that island. So we spent two weeks there and we were working with a little chick on the day of our anniversary and Susan was actually holding this chick. We were weighing and measuring them with one of the biologists and Susan said to me, you know, this is our 10th species of penguin. And I said, and it's our 10th wedding anniversary. (laughs) That's 10 for 10. There was something about the symmetry of that moment that just made us say, this is sort of meant to be somehow that this really is part of who we are together. And that's when we decided right then and there that we were going to go for all 18. I love that. That's such a romantic story. 
romantic moment. So, Susan, I didn't realize before researching you that you are a resilience expert. So I'm wondering if you can share some of your favorite resilience practices. Yeah, thank you. Well, a few things I do, and then maybe one thing based on some research I did about a year and a half or so ago. Since the pandemic started, I've been walking for about an hour every day and often walking outdoors. And so that combines two things <laughs> into one experience that, you know, really help me be more resilient. I used to often have a long commute to Seattle and travel nationally or even internationally for my career. And that all went away with the, the shutdown starting in March of 2020. So I just reclaimed that time and repurposed it into getting outside and and walking. And I love that, you know, we live in an area where we can see Puget Sound and the mountains and lots of trees and birds and sometimes deers and bunnies. And so it's great to get outdoors and do that. Another thing that I make a point of doing regularly is unplugging. Lots of ways that, that people can do that. Sometimes I've gone through periods where I make sure that like one day of the weekend, I'm completely unplugged from social media and email, or I make sure that after dinner time or seven in the evening, I'm staying off of email and social media. And so having that time where we're not kind of constantly checking what's going on is really important. Finally, another thing that I I do is make time to get out of my head (laughs) and like just laugh or be creative. I do watercolor painting sometimes, and that's a great way to kind of engage my creativity and do something that really gets me out of my right brain thinking. About a year and a half ago, I, I did some research into resilience and what helps people be resilient. And one of the things that I learned is that the people who describe themselves as being the most resilient in enduring ways are people who are engaging all of their senses. So this partly goes back to the idea of doing something physical, like walking or other forms of physical activity, you know, things that engage our sight, our sense of smell. So that could be like cooking, for example, or arranging flowers. So, you know, having a massage, for example, is an or a hug, you know, which has been in short supply <laughs> through the pandemic, <laughs> right, but kind of engaging ourselves in these different kinds of sensory experiences is really important. And also doing things that engage heart, mind, body, spirit. So many of us spend much of our days in intellectual activities and ensuring that we're well-rounded is important for our resilience. Yeah, I have really become fascinated with the topic of resilience. I am personally a naturally resilient person. I've discovered that about myself, but it doesn't always come as easily to other people. So your tips are very helpful. Thanks. I think a lot of people have gotten more connected to the outdoors during the pandemic. Right. I do have been like my daily walk. I have to get outside every day. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, there was a, an interesting article recently. I think it was in Forbes, if I remember correctly. I could send you the link if you're interested with the headline, 
is two hours a week in nature, the new 10,000 steps a day. (laughs) So there's more and more evidence to support really what we know intuitively in our bones, which is that having time outdoors in nature is super important for us. Yes. I interviewed a, a woman a couple of months ago named Katrina Nielsen Gorman, and she had this incredible story about traveling in India, traveling throughout Asia and actually getting raped when she was in India. And she actually stayed in India after it happened. She had a really positive memory of the Indian people because she was really taken care of there. But she came back, she was actually living in living in Colorado, but she now lives in the Northwest. But she had a number of health problems and she really found healing in the forest. So now mm-hmm. she is a forest therapy guide. And I just wow, love that idea. Cool. Isn't that amazing? I know I never heard of that before, but So let's talk a little bit more about penguins again. So when reading your book, I kept recalling the movie March of the Penguins. Probably a lot of people think about that because of, you know, the fascination of emperor penguins. And I was thinking about how they have more of a matriarchal society. The females choose the mating partners, the males incubate the eggs while fasting, and then the females go off on a sea voyage. And so this resonated with me because my husband was a stay-at-home dad for most of our, our parenting time while I was a breadwinner. Are emperor penguins the only penguins that live this way? And what do you think it says about their species in general? What can we learn from emperor penguins? Yeah, the females play a really important role, obviously, in the emperor penguins. The emperor penguins mate in pretty remarkable, in fact, the most remarkable circumstances, I think, of any bird and maybe any animal in the world. They're the only penguin of the 18 species that stays in Antarctica through the winter. All the other birds that are there actually leave. But the emperor penguin not only stays in Antarctica, but in that winter, the most ferocious winters on the planet, that's when they breed. Females do play a very important role. They lay the egg, this single egg. They don't have nests because they breed on sea ice just off the continent. There's no nesting materials, really. And the males, she passes the egg off to the male who tucks it into a pouch, covers it with feathers. And then she goes to sea to feed for the nine weeks that the male will stay with the egg and incubate it on his own. It's just a remarkable circumstance. Whether they're fully matriarchal in the sense that, say, orca whales are matriarchal in that the females will lead a pod of uh, whales, I'm really not quite sure. But they play this really important role and they have this important function to perform. What I think is kind of amazing is that then they both share the duties and the job of raising the chick. And The thing about penguins is that it's so easy to see ourselves in so much of what they do. It's just really remarkable how easily we find ourselves able to identify with them and learn from them. So I think they're just terrific creatures to think about. They they almost make us think about how we live. I think they're the only, I don't know of any other penguin that has this kind of structure where the female will lay the egg and then leave and come back. They're, they're really, emperor penguins are really unique in that, but they do, they definitely provide us with the sense of family drama and family values in the way they raise their chicks. So the story that you told about traversing the river in New Zealand, that had me on the edge of my seat. (laughs) That was, and I love the way you carefully unravel that, which of course kept me like, oh, I have to stay up longer in the middle of the night to read this. So, so that was one of just one of several stories in the book that kept me awake at night. You had such incredible 
ventures. Can you just give a little bit of a nutshell explanation of what Mm -hmm. happened with the river? Right. Yeah. Well, we were on the edge of our seats too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then you had a horrible injury check too when you fell, right? So, yeah. oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. We will give you, as you said, the the nutshell version, Marie, and you know the full details are, are in the book. We wanted to see the Fjordland penguin, which is difficult or challenging to accomplish. And we had gone to a particular lodge in New Zealand in order to see it. And when we were there, there were just torrential rains, very heavy rains for days. And we'd been there for two or three days waiting for the weather to clear enough that we could make this big hike from the lodge down some distance couple miles to the beach where the penguins were. And and finally, the weather lifted enough that the guide felt it was safe for us to go down. He let us down and left us seated on a big log on the beach where we spent several hours watching these Fjordland penguins come and go from the sea up to their nests, which are on the hillside, actually in trees and shrubs. It's a, a really interesting place where they make their nests. So we were watching the birds coming and going and Chuck was photographing. And some hours later, the guide came back and said, we've got to go right away. The rivers come up because the rain had picked back up again while we were there. So we got back to this river that we had had to cross in order to get to this viewing area. And the guide gave us a speech, a safety orientation before we entered the river. He said, you've got to keep your feet on the floor of the river every step. Don't lift your feet. And we've got to keep our arms locked no matter what happens don't fall down, keep your feet on the floor of the river and keep walking ahead, stay upright. Well, as we got partway across the river, the water is deeper and deeper. It had come up a lot while we were watching the penguins, like it's up to thighs and hips. And Chuck was carrying a very heavy, like 35, 40 pound camera pack with all of his gear. And the river's raging. Well, Chuck went down and I started to go down. The guide's yelling at us, stay up, stay up. (laughs) Well, we made our way across, fortunately, but it was definitely a scary moment. And once we made our way across, we still had to hike about two miles back to the lodge and get across several smaller streams. So that was, I would say, one of the more dangerous moments of the penguin quest and we were happy to come out on the other side it was a near-death experience the truth of the matter i mean the currents in the river were strong enough that they could have easily carried us out into the tasman (gasps) sea and that was really just felt really lucky to have made it out of there boy Pretty, really amazing. So you wrote about the threats to penguin habitat and health and provided many wonderful resources in the back of the book. Can you share with listeners some of what threatens penguins because of climate change and other factors? Well, the big threat for climate change for penguins is warming oceans. And that has a lot of dangers. Your listeners may have heard that in the last three or four months, two big ice chunks 
have broken off of Antarctica, each one the size of Great Britain, just enormous. They're being eroded from underneath by warming seas. That is a huge threat to Antarctic penguins. For the more temperate climate species like African penguins or Magellanic penguins, ocean warming is having this terrible effect. It's changing ocean currents. So like there are currents of cold water that come up from Antarctica and go right to the tip of Africa, for example. And that's why there are penguins in Africa. There's one species of penguin in Africa, and that's why that cold water current. But that current now, warming the oceans, is shifting that current 200 miles to the south and east. And with it, the food that these penguins require. And it just means they have to swim farther to get food for their babies and it makes it harder for them to catch fish and to get it back to their babies, which means their babies are now nourished. So it's harder to recruit young penguins and have them grow to adulthood. And that's a real problem. And it's a problem that's also happening in South America with the Humboldt current. So Galapagos penguins, for example, have 800, probably 800 penguins left. That's all. African penguins are down 95%. Fjordland penguin, which Susan just talked about, as maybe 2,500 penguins left. So over half the species of penguins are already threatened with extinction and global warming is playing a real role in that. Yeah, that's very concerning. So both of you have experienced serious health challenges. Susan, you survived stage three breast cancer. And Chuck, I was so sorry to read at the end of the book that you have been diagnosed with Parkinson's. What have you learned in your 17-year-long penguin trek that has helped you be resilient in the face of these challenges? Yeah, thanks. It's it's a very thoughtful question. You know, the first time I saw a penguin in the wild was the Galapagos penguin in January 2004. And I was still going through treatment for breast cancer at that point, had very recently finished radiation, had almost no hair because I had gone through chemo that had wrapped up a few months earlier and was still doing other kinds of ongoing treatment. And you know, I, I made the trip with Chuck and the student group he was leading at that point because I really wanted to see the penguin <laughs> and had a marvelous experience snorkeling where I was able to get really close to a Galapagos penguin that was sitting on a rock. And I will never forget that moment. It, you know, I carry it with me for the rest of my life. And well, that was my first penguin in the wild. And in some ways, the start of the penguin quest, it also was the culmination for me of a, of a big dream because I had wanted for some years to see a penguin in the wild. And for me, one of the, the lessons of all of this is that, and it sounds cliche in a certain way, and it's really true that we don't know how long we have our health. We don't know how long we have to live. We don't know how long we have to be with our loved ones. You know, the natural world is endangered in so many ways, which is part of what Chuck was just describing. And so it feels really important to pursue what matters, to make a difference and do it while we can, because we don't know. Well, yeah, and I think that's right. And I would kind of just build on that a little bit. Yeah, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Uh, we were about halfway through our penguin quest. That was obviously a sobering moment. And I realized a number of things and the penguins helped me with that a lot. One of the things I realized is that all of us are really only one doctor's visit away from our mortality. 
And it's a pretty important thing to kind of bear in mind. And that those moments of sitting in a doctor's office, getting that kind of news are pretty sobering. But then for me, I just realized pretty quickly that while it was not the message I ever wanted to hear, of all the things I could have heard, that was by no means the worst. And there was just something about penguins. They live in such daunting circumstances and they they, they can be such delightful creatures that it just became this kind of model for me. Hmm. It's easy to be happy when things are going your way. And I, I think the real question is, can you find happiness when you have challenges that you face? And these were pretty serious challenges. And the strange thing is, I felt happier after that diagnosis than I had at any other point in my life. And it was kind of, it was just really remarkable. Wow. Yeah. My brother-in-law who lives in Puyallup, another PLU grad, found out he had a very advanced form of throat cancer when he went to his doctor on his 65th birthday. Totally caught my sister and her husband off, off guard and, you know, it was life-changing. So he's doing really well now, but he's, he's still not able to eat really very well. So he's a survivor, but yeah, it changes your life in so many ways. So it makes really you appreciate. And, yeah. And Susan's right. You know, we watch as we have moved into our sixties and beyond, we see it happens all the time. You know, folks just have dreams they want to fulfill and come to retirement. And in fact, go to the doctor and find out they have some rare form of cancer or they have heart issues and those dreams they don't get to live on. And we just realized we better do what we want to do now because you just don't know it's going to be ahead of you. Absolutely. So that's a good segue into my next question, which is you describe your experience as a spiritual journey as pilgrims of penguins. Can you elaborate on that? One of the things I should say is that I divided the book into three parts. There was a section on adventure, penguins and adventure is sort of how we began penguins and conservation which is was the deepening part of the quest into some kind of significance about the future of penguins and the future of the planet. And then really the kind of personal dimensions of it, which over time came to feel to us very much like we were learning something. We were being called in some way. And I began thinking of it as a pilgrimage. And really what that means is a kind of external voyage that invokes a corresponding internal voyage, that it's a journey of the spirit of the soul in some way. And I think both of us felt very much that that was the case. And for me, this became a deepening kind of interest in seeing more deeply into things, into seeing into the mystery of things. And the way I put it in the book is to see with the eyes of the heart, as well as with the eyes in my head. And that happened in a number of cases, but emperor penguins, probably more than any other, really took me deeper into my own sense of what life was about and what I wanted to make of it. And through a connection with the creatures like emperor penguins that we share this planet with. I don't want to give away all the spoilers in the book, but that was one of the parts in the book where I was like holding my breath when you were almost able not to see the emperor penguins. So I really want to encourage listeners to go get the book to read about that. I felt very concerned for you, <laughs> whether you were going to be able to get there or not. So. Well, that was a low point, really, in a way. I, I had hurt my back before that voyage, and it was seen in a colony of emperor penguins as a major commitment. It's a huge undertaking because you have to cross the Drake Passage and be on an icebreaker and crash through ice to get farther south, and then take helicopters to the sea ice, and then hike on the sea ice to the colony. It's a real undertaking. <laughs> And my back started acting up. And I don't know if if people have had back issues, they know the kind of pain that can invoke. It was just excruciating. And carrying a camera
camera pack only made it worse. I could barely get to the colony and I could barely get back. In fact, it drove me to my knees on several occasions. It was a real low moment because I thought I've come all this way and I may not even be able to get to the colony. I'm just in such excruciating pain. I'll leave that for the readers to discover how that kind of plays itself out. But it did. And I can say that the emperors were super positive in all that. What was your high point, Chuck? Lots of high points. Yes. I think the first landing on South Georgia Island was one of the great high points. And finding nesting albatrosses and nesting penguins, it was just, oh, gosh. I'll never forget that. Susan, how about you? What was your high point and low point? Yeah, well, I'll I'll start with a low point. You know, one of the things that Chuck and I have, have said over the years is that the quest to see all 18 penguins is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> no. I mean, we have had just some massive adventures. It it really takes a significant commitment. And, you know, one of the things that, that happens is that you really don't have any control over the natural elements and the wilds and the weather. So, for example, we made a trip to New Zealand and some other sub-Antarctic islands. We wanted to see the snares penguin. This goes back roughly six years or so ago now. And the snares penguin lives in the snares islands, which are small kind of rocks south of New Zealand. And we were on a ship. It was a gale, very high winds, very high seas. And long story short, the ship could not get anywhere near shore, which meant that it was not safe to get into Zodiacs and go near shore to see the penguins more closely, which we would typically do on an expedition like this. And so we were right there. We could see the islands with binoculars. We could see from some distance away the teeniest like specks (laughs) of penguins through our binoculars, you know, on the shoreline. But that was as close as we could get. And you just have to kind of let go because there's no controlling the weather, right? And what's happening. So we ended up going back a year and a half ago on a similar trip and we were able to see the snares then, which was great. But, you know, it was definitely a low point and a a real disappointment to not be able to see them after all that the first time around. A high point was when we saw penguin number 18, the Northern Rockhopper. We spent five weeks on a ship sailing up the middle of the Atlantic south to north in order to see it, gosh, hundreds and hundreds of miles kind of in the middle of the Atlantic, roughly, I don't know, halfway between uh, Africa and South America. And again, the weather conditions had been uncertain. It was not clear that we were going to be able to see the Northern Rockhopper The captain was monitoring the conditions. It was touch and go. Finally, he decided that it was safe enough. There were very big swells, but he said, if you're willing to take the risk of getting in the Zodiacs, we'll ride the swells and get closer to shore so that you can see them. And it was pouring, pouring down rain and you know, the northern rockhoppers were swimming all around us. Normally, they have these beautiful crests, but the crests were all like soaking wet and flopping down because of the rain pouring down. And, you know, so here we are with these Northern rockhoppers swimming all around the Zodiacs and we were drenched, but Chuck and I just looked at each other 
looked at the penguins with these joyful smiles on our faces. We were so happy because that was penguin number 18. Oh. Yeah, penguins, we realized, can be the most miserable way in the world of having, <laughs> having the best time of your yes. life. <laughs> How did you celebrate seeing number 18? What did we Well, do? I don't know. We were we were on the ship. I'm sure we, you know, raised a glass of we, champagne. champagne. Sure. <laughs> right. Sure. Oh my god. Yeah. I mean, the amount of money, energy, and time that you spent on this quest is like yeah. wow. It's amazing. So how did following the penguins change your relationship? Well, I said a little bit about that. I I think it's deepened the bond we have between us. There's just we've shared something and we've one of the things I think we've realized is that we have profoundly at a very deep level, very much the same set of values. And we like to do this very much the same sorts of things. And it's just connected us in that way. Nice. I'm very lucky I have that with my husband as well. Great. It's a rare bond. So I asked this question on most of my podcast interviews, which is kind of a random thing. (laughs) What have you read or watched recently that has inspired you? It can be penguin related or not penguin related. Any recommendations for listeners of something to read or watch? Yeah, I would say that if people have not seen my octopus teacher, we highly recommend that. We watched it some months ago and want to see it again. It is terrific. Octopi are so intelligent. And gosh, I mean, we laughed, we cried. It's fascinating. And so that's for anybody who loves the natural world in any way, that's definitely a must see. I've heard a lot of people recommend that. I have not watched it yet. So I'm gonna have yeah. to put it, put it on your list. <laughs> yes. <laughs> definitely. There's a moment when the octopus actually hugs the snorkeler. <laughs> really? Oh my gosh. Spins over and hugs it. It's an amazing moment. I've been reading Helen McDonald lately. She's got a great book called H is for Hawk. She trains a goshawk and in the aftermath of her father's death. And it's the kind of ongoing story. It's very emotional, profoundly. Mm-hmm. It's a great book. Intense connection between a woman and a very difficult to train but ultimately beautiful relationship with a goshawk. Wow. That's a great recommendation. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, great. So what's next for you two after you've seen all these penguins? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what's next I in just, your life? <laughs> yeah, we always have something on the horizon. And uh, last August, September, we had planned to be in Madagascar and Kenya. Mm. And because of the pandemic, that trip was canceled, of course. And so for about a year, we did not have any trip on the books, which is very unusual for us. And fortunately, with things seeming to improve a bit and people getting vaccines, we feel like we're at a point now where we can start looking ahead to 2022 travel. And so just a few days ago, we rebooked that same trip for Madagascar and Kenya, and we're planning that for late summer, early fall 2022. So that's one big thing that we're very excited about. Yeah, and of course, penguins. We've seen all 18 of them, but we've got- We still have penguin goals. Yes. (laughs) We've been going through penguin (laughs) withdrawals. So we have, we're researching different kinds of penguin trips that we would still like to do. Uh I want to see emperor penguins again. Uh Uh-huh. Love those guys. And so we're actually looking into a couple, three mm-hmm. different voyages. One of them is actually camping with penguins for about nine nights. Oh, my gosh. Antarctica. Yeah, I'm sure it would be nice for you to see the emperors when you were didn't have a sore back, too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
You know, I would I would go back to what Chuck said earlier in answer to your wonderful question about the uh, three ways that penguins can provide hope. And one of them that Chuck talked about is awe and wonder. And this idea of numinous experiences is something that we both are drawn to and our time in the wild has given us so many opportunities for these experiences that fill our spirits, fill our hearts. There's just this tremendous sense of awe and wonder. And I miss that. Mm. (laughs) You know, I mean, certainly there are ways to capture that in everyday life. And those big moments that we've had where we're with like 200,000 king penguins on the beach or we're in the middle of, you know, a half a dozen humpback whales that are feeding. I miss those experiences and we're looking forward to more. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you do miss them. This has just been such an honor and a joy to talk with both of you. I really enjoyed our conversation. Anything final that you'd like to add? Well, thanks for conducting the interview. Great questions, Marie. It's great to talk with you and see how well you're doing with your writing career. I think <laughs> the old writing teacher, very, very happy. Oh, God. I'm so glad. Yes. Yeah. Thank yes. you for the chance to have the conversation. We both appreciate it. Now you understand how much Dr. Chuck Bergman influenced my life path. Interviewing Chuck and Susan was a real thrill for me. Don't forget, you can find further details about their journeys and view Chuck's gorgeous photos on my website. Go to www.fertilegroundcommunications.com and look for the podcast tab. Do you know someone with a grit and resilience story who would be great to interview? Or maybe you might like to suggest a guest for my new podcast, Companies That Care. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. If you liked today's episode, please visit our Patreon page and learn how to support us. You can also subscribe and leave a review. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications.